there are those times in life when you have sort of an epiphany that you've used a word all your life, but when you go and try to define it, you really don't know how to define what it is that you've talked about your whole life. Um, I have had one of those moments uh, this week in preparation for this sermon. Um, here, the apostles returned to Jesus, and Luke tells us that they were rejoicing that uh, the demons were subject to them in his name. And then right after that, Luke tells us in the same hour, verse 21, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, in the word that I have used my whole life, and yet never really sat down and tried to define and found out how very difficult it is to define is the word joy. What is joy? I was interesting this morning on one of my social media feeds, a, a acquaintance from high school who's had a hard life um, wrote, how does one go about finding joy in such a negative world? I thought that was a very interesting and timely thing this morning. And, and as we think about the concept of joy and how to define it, and we go and we start to read theologians, perhaps theologians know how to define joy because they, they're the ones that should know how to define these things. We find out just how difficult it is to define what joy is. Um, most will actually tell you what joy is not. It is not happiness. It may include happiness. It is not happiness. Joy is not satisfaction. It involves satisfaction. Um, joy is not only an experience. It involves experience and feeling. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he goes to uh, define joy, says in his attempt, joy is an unsatisfied desire which itself is more desirable than any satisfaction. I know, it hurt my head. And then he goes on to say, joy has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with happiness and pleasure, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. <laughs> you see, he's actually not fully defining joy for you. John Piper will try to define joy. He will say Christian joy, and he'll distinguish between what the world is seeking for and they think it is with what the Bible speaks about as Obviously, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. He says Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. I was like, wow, did John Piper just say? <laughs> Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. I actually think he's correct. Produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. I think that's somewhat helpful. Um, it, is, it is so many things. Um, and in some ways, true joy uh, can only be experienced um, and can't really fully be defined. It can be explained as to its source. Uh, we can be told that we ought to be joyful people. We can look at other people and tell that they are or are not joyful people, and yet it is a very hard thing to define. Um, I know when I'm not joyful, I don't always know what joy is. Now, one of the interesting things about the passage in front of us this morning is uh, we have here both the disciples rejoicing and Jesus rejoicing and Jesus correcting the disciples about their misplaced joy and explaining to them where true joy has its foundation and source. Um, but before I go and look at both the disciples' joy and Jesus' joy, uh, I think it's interesting for us to, to get a hold of this fact that when we think about Jesus, um, we often we often don't think of him as a joyful person. 
think when most of us think about Jesus, we think of him as being very serious. I imagine he was very serious many times. We think of him perhaps inappropriately as austere. We think of Jesus as never laughing. Um, these, are, these are the notions that many serious Christians have about the Savior. They, they fail to see, and, and one of the reasons is this is one of the only places in uh, the scriptures that tell us about the joy of Jesus. The other place is Hebrews 12, where we're told that uh, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And here Jesus himself is telling us that he was rejoicing in spirit because of certain truths about God and himself as God, as one with the Father, as the one who reveals the Father, as the one the Father reveals to his people. Uh, He's rejoicing in the sovereignty of God. He's rejoicing in the fact that God is saving his people. He's rejoicing in the doctrine of election. Um, and, And Jesus is supremely a man of joy. And Luke is holding that out to us. Now, this morning we want to look at two things as we consider this. First, we want to consider um, the disciples need to put joy into perspective. The disciples need to put joy into perspective. And then Jesus' explanation of the foundation of joy. So, joy put into perspective and the explanation of the foundation of joy. Well, notice the 72 have been sent out. They went without money. They went without uh, provisions. They, Jesus told them, you're going to go out like uh, sheep among wolves. It's going to be hard. There's going to be warfare. I'm going to go before you. You're going to go before me into all these towns. I am sending you out to be an extension of the new Israel, the messianic kingdom. The kingdom of God is coming. I'm going to use my people. I want my people to be involved in the evangelistic ministry for which I have come into this world and for which I am going to die. I'm guaranteeing success to that based on what I'm going to accomplish at the cross. And then, remember, Jesus defends his disciples stepping out in front of them and pronouncing those prophetic woes on the cities that rejected them and showing that at the end of the day, he is not only the savior, he is the judge. And he is the one leading forth and ultimately bringing about the outcome of the work of evangelism. Well, the disciples have gone, the 72 have now come back and notice they're excited. They're like children at Chuck E. Cheese at the counter with all the little toys. And it says they came back and they're rejoicing. They're like, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're, they're surprised. They didn't really expect this. They think this is the greatest thing ever. They are experiencing joy in their souls because they're able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And I imagine if we were among the 72, we would have the exact same response. Uh, They were realizing that Jesus was working in them and through them. And they were finding their uh, hope and satisfaction and that feeling of delight welling up in them because of what they were not able to do, Jesus working in them. Now, we often feel that. Um, I, for me, nine years in this church has just been a roller coaster. Church grows, the church shrinks, the church grows, the church shrinks, the church, in my soul, roller coaster. Why do we let circumstances determine our joy? Well, we're just like the disciples. 
right? Things seem to be going well outwardly. Se things seem to be developing. Uh, you know, everything around you may, if it's going well, we're happy, we're delighted, we, we, this feels good, I like this, it's success, I want, that's what the world, that's, that's the only metric we have, is what everybody around us is doing. And, and so the disciples, they're experiencing these new experiences, everything's so much fun and wonderful, and they come back and they tell Jesus this, and essentially, um, he bursts their joy balloon, and he says, look, you think that's big? I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Remember, he's the son of God. He cast Satan out of heaven when he fell. Um, so he was there. Um, he's essentially saying to them, why would this surprise you? I've come into this world to destroy the works of the devil. Notice what Jesus says. I saw Satan fall like lightning. From heaven, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. That's metaphorical. He's, he's saying every time you cast out demons, every time you preach the gospel and people's lives are changed, every time you, you have power to heal others, uh, Satan's kingdom is being plundered. And, and the kingdom of God is being established. And I gave you that authority. It's all from me. They, they knew that in part. They said, Lord... We can cast out demons in your name. They, they weren't, at that point, trusting in what they were doing. They understood that Jesus was working in them, but he essentially was saying, why, why, why should that make you so incredibly elated in your heart that this is the greatest thing? You should have known this is what I came into the world to do. Um, this is the whole purpose of the messianic ministry for which I have come. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And I've told you, nothing's going to hurt you until the mission is accomplished and you've served your purpose. Um, there's an element of surprise, I think, in the disciples. Because most of the time when we are very joyful, it's because we've experienced something unexpected. So if it's expected, we tend not to be carried along by it. If something good happens unexpected, we tend to be elated by it. Now, it's very interesting. I think C.S. Lewis actually includes that in his definition of joy. Listen again. Joy is an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. It is something that when anyone has experienced it, they will want it again. It's, it's, a, new, it's a new thing. There's something unexpected. Jesus is saying, why should, this be, why should this be your highest source of joy? This is, this is why I've come. Um, and then notice what he says to them. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, Jesus wants his disciples to know true joy. Remember when he is in the upper room and he's about to go to the cross, one of the last things that Jesus says is, my joy I give to you. My joy, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to the cross to prepare a place for you and then to glory and come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also my joy I give to you. Um, Jesus wants to share his joy. Phil Riken says, this joy, the joy Jesus is 
teaching them about, this perspective. This joy is one that Jesus shares. When the evangelist told Jesus about their victory of the demons, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And now he tells them there's something bigger than that. There's a bigger reason for you to rejoice. There's, there's something more significant than that that I've done for you and giving you that is foundational. But before he says this, I want us to get this, that the majority of our issues in life are perspective. So the disciples have miscategorized what's really important. Um, Jesus is essentially going to teach them that the grace that they have been given by God freely for their redemption is more important than any gifts that they've been given. Grace is more important than gifts. You see, Judas cast out demons. Judas preached the gospel. Judas could have been very gifted. Didn't make him a Christian. Judas had no grace. He had gifts. Remember, God spoke through Balaam's ass, the donkey. He spoke through Caiaphas, the high priest, the wicked ruler, who didn't even know he was prophesying. So gifts are no sure mark of regeneration, union with Christ, the right to eternal life. Um, it may have been that in these 72, there were, there were people who were not truly converted, and yet they, they were given gifts, and they used them. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, that's not the really important thing, because even an unbeliever could have a temporal gift uh, in the church, and that's, that's not a sure mark that someone's converted. Writer of Hebrews makes a great deal about this when he talks about those who fall away, and he says, you know, they for a time were enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gifts. They, they, they were made in some sense to experience the powers of the age to come. They were not converted. They had the outward working of the Spirit on them. Um, they may have even felt good inside for a time. Remember the seed and the sower? Remember there is... The one seed, they received the word, and Jesus says they believe for a while. It's not true faith. It's not saving faith. But they believe for a while. They receive the word with joy. They believe for a while, but when persecution came, when difficulty came, they fell away. So he's saying grace is more important than gifts, and, and all of our life is having to learn this principle. You know, on the roller coaster of ministry— and since this is the context of ministry, I'll, I'll just speak about this. Um, it is one of the greatest snares to a man that God calls to be a minister to put his ultimate hope in outcomes in the here and now. And yet, almost everybody around them is telling them to do that. And, you know, here's, here's how dangerous this is. People will say, well, it's not about how many people you have. It's not about this and that. And then they'll turn right around and they'll be like, but you know what? It really is. They, they, they'll double speak on that constantly. They'll do it by their example. They'll do it by what they talk about. They'll do it by their emphases. Jesus comes in and he says, look, it's not wrong to be happy about things going well. In the Christian life, it's not wrong to be happy that God is using you in ministering a gift to someone in the church or outside of the church. It's not, there's nothing wrong 
with being thankful about that. There are dangers accompanied with it. I think one of the reasons Jesus tells them this is because it can become very dangerous for people with gifts and power to start to trust in those things, to be puffed up, to think that they're important or better or somehow uh, more prominent, more deserving. Um, and Jesus comes in there and, and he says, look, your perspective is, is all skewed. He says, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Here's the amazing thing. If your name is written in the book of life, and we'll talk all about the book of life here in a second, not the movie, the real one. If your name is written in the book of life, you're going to go to heaven forever. You're going to have eternal life. You're not going to perish forever. And you did nothing to put your name in there. So Jesus is saying the thing that, the, the, when you get your perspective right, the thing that should create the most joy in my heart is a thing I had absolutely nothing to do with. And it is the most important thing. It should be the most important thing to me in my thinking. More important than how's ministry going. More important than, than how anything is going, how anything in my life is, is going. The most important thing should be, is my name written in the book of life? Because not everybody's name is written in the book of life. Now, what is the book of life? Jesus speaks about it here in Luke. The Apostle Paul will speak about it in Philippians chapter 4. He will talk about uh, women who served with him in the gospel. And he said, my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So he, he says there, is, there are certain people whose names are written in this book. It still doesn't tell us. It's kind of like defining joy. What is the book of life? Well, I think it has as its background the Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, God's people were registered. We have a whole book about this, Numbers. Their names were listed. They were counted. And if you were registered, if you were counted, if your name was inscribed, it was saying you were part of the covenant people. Your name was in that book. Uh, Malachi will talk about this. He'll say those that feared the Lord spoke to one another, and a book of remembrance was written about them. So they were registered. They loved the Lord. They called on the Lord together. It was, in a sense, the Old Covenant version of a church membership role. These are God's people. If you were excommunicated from Israel, you were no longer in that book. Your name was removed from the registry. Um, that's a very reductionistic way of explaining that Old Testament background. Jesus here uh, says this in such a way that you, you expect that the disciples know what he's talking about. He doesn't even explain it to them. He says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in the book of life. Now, the Apostle John is going to pick up on this in the book of Revelation, and you're going to find multiple references to the book of life. And in what is arguably the most important statement, uh, we find it toward the end of Revelation in two places. First, John says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So the book of life is, its full title, its subtitle is the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So everybody in that book has been purchased with the blood of Jesus. 
They are the elect. These are the ones when Jesus says constantly, those my Father has given me. Those my Father has given me. I laid down my life for those the Father gave me before the foundation of the world. I laid down my life for the sheep. So the Father gives him a people in eternity. He says, my son, these are they whom you are going to die and redeem. And they have been chosen in Christ not because of anything they've done. Zero. Nothing. How foolish anyone could ever think that God accepts you because of anything you've done. Because our sin is enormous. But God chooses some by grace, freely, in Christ, puts them in a book, and says, my son, these are the ones for whom you are going to shed your blood. And then the Apostle John says about heaven, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus is not saying if, you're, if you have 51% good works, then your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life and you'll go to heaven forever because you're pure enough. John Piper gives a great uh, meditation on the thief on the cross. He says, here's, here's the thief. He's lived a completely wicked life. There's no reasonable way in which we should assume he has done one good thing. Like ever. Maybe he was nice as a kid and then went off the tracks and <laughs> veered off and was beating people to a bloody pulp on the side of the road like the man the Good Samaritan helped and robbing them and maybe the guy died and he's a murderer too and now he's nailed to a tree next to Jesus. And he's mocking Jesus. This is this man's life. He's mocking the Savior with the other thief. If you're really the Son of God, they're mocking Jesus. And then something happens. God gives grace to that thief, and he turns to the other thief, and he says, do you not even fear God, seeing that we deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing wrong, and then he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, did he do good works? Yes. Rebuking the other thief was a good work. Yes. Asking the other thief if he feared God is a good work. Trusting in Jesus, in some sense, we can say, is a good work. It's the, the summum bonum. It's the highest good you can do is trust in Jesus. You can't do it apart from grace. So, so this man, and then he dies. That's it. It's not 51%. It's not 51%. So he doesn't go to heaven because of that point zero 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 one so not even one percent good works not i mean nothing but he goes to heaven and he's included in what john says in revelation when he says no one who does what is shameful or deceitful will enter in everything he did was shameful and deceitful but you see his name was written in the book of life jesus was next to him shedding his blood for him the holy spirit regenerated him because his name was in the book of life. And at the very end of his life, there was testimony that he was truly born of God's spirit. And so he is with Christ in glory. Jesus said, assuredly, assuredly, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. So it's not 51%. It's not 0.00001%. It is that God has chosen a people for himself. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, it's not because of anything that you've done. Jesus is going to make that very clear here in a minute. 
It's going to say it's not the wise and understanding, it's not the learned, it's not because you are more dignified, had a better upbringing, nothing, nothing, but babes, the ignorant, foolish, weak, poor, needy, unrefined, unaccepted, unpopular, but God reveals Christ to them because their names have been inscribed in the book of life, and they trust in him because he purchases them at the cross. Now, that should produce a whole lot of joy. When I lack joy, I have forgotten that my name is written in the book of life. When you lack joy, if you're a Christian, it's because you have forgotten that your name is written in the book of life. Because according to Jesus, that's the thing. So my high school acquaintance, how does one go about finding joy in a negative world? Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus says rejoice. That's the highest privilege. It secures all our hopes. It's the biggest thing. It keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus, not on ourselves. Now, by the way, happiness so often is self-centered, isn't it? Joy is God-centered. Happiness is so often self-centered. Jesus is teaching us in perspective that joy is God-centered. So what is God doing? What has God done? Why is there emptiness in my soul? Because I'm self-centered. And when we're seeking for happiness or acceptance or purpose or any of those things in a non-God-centered way, it's just the only other option is supreme self-centeredness. That's it. That's the only other option. So Jesus says, true joy comes from having your name written by God in heaven. Now, secondly, let's consider the foundation of this joy. Notice Jesus now rejoices in verse 21. I love that connection. He, he tells them what to rejoice in, rejoice in, and then he turns around and he shows them what, to, what it looks like. He turns around and Jesus turns to his father and in front of the disciples and he essentially says, I'm going to do the very thing I just told you to do. Now, obviously his name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It is his book of life. It's written on the cover. He doesn't rejoice in having his name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He rejoices that he is the lamb and everything about him and his relationship with his father and God's sovereignty in revealing him to his people and sending him to them and giving them wisdom and understanding and opening their eyes to see him. He rejoices in God's sovereignty. His joy is rooted in the same thing that puts someone's name in the lamb's book of life, God's free sovereign will. By the way, if you've ever gotten in those debates about free will, if you were if you were that being of which there was no greater, so you're self-contained, God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, contained only by himself, can do whatever he wants. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases, the psalmist says. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, when he finally when God humbled him and he ate grass like, a, like an animal, um, he said, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say, what are you doing? So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, he's in control of everything, everything. There's zero outside of his control. When, right now in Hawaii, that, the bubbling lava, 
perfectly in control of that. He ordains everything. He's in control of everything. He's God. And then you, he hears his people grumbling, well, I think we have free will, blah, 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 without for one minute recognizing how awesome God is in infinite sovereignty. And Jesus teaches this to us. Notice this. He says, I thank you, Father, verse 21, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Notice that. He thanks the Father for hiding the revelation about himself from certain people. This is not Paul. This is not Moses. This is not John Calvin. This is not Jonathan Edwards. This is Jesus. This is the only Jesus, the true Jesus. You can't have your own personal Jesus who doesn't say this. And now everybody has that song in their head. <laughs> he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, sovereign Lord, for hiding these things from the wise and the prudent and revealing them to babes. Now, there is a sense in which all of us deserve to have the truth hidden from us. The wise and the understanding by worldly standards, those who think that they're, they are smarter and more uh, ingenious and more uh, sufficient in themselves, uh, are in one sense no different than you and me. Um, uh, none of us have anything. None of us deserve God to reveal his son to us. None of us. Jesus is going to thank the Father for revealing him, and he's going to remind the Father of their perfect, unbroken, divine unity in his revelation of the Father to us. Um, this is, by the way, this is, this is it. This is it. Jesus is going to take us into the very inner Trinitarian unity in his prayer to his Father and show us worlds. You know, when the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, so what enabled Jesus to go to the cross for us was that there was something, there was joy set before him. What was that joy? That joy was the joy of the Father revealing him to his people, applying his saving works to them, the joy he has of revealing his Father to them, the joy of bringing many sons to glory and daughters to glory, that, that he had this joy about being with those the Father had chosen in him before the foundation of the world forever. And, and that enabled him to go to the cross. And now he turns back to the Father, and, and he, he thanks the Father for his sovereignty. Now, notice he says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So, so if God has revealed his son to you and me, it's because God willed to do that graciously. It's all grace. You see, that's how he's pitting gifts and grace here. It was God's gracious will to reveal the Son. Now, notice this. Um, the Father and the Son have this perfect unity. Notice verse 22. All things, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, the first part of that's super easy. Jesus says that the Father knows who he is in an intimate, divine, 
full way. Nobody knows who the Son is except the Father. And then likewise, the Son knows the Father in that intimate, divine fullness. He knows the Father intimately. The, the Father knows him infinitely and intimately. He is one with the Father. This is God the Son. This is God speaking to God. Yes. And he's saying, nobody knows the Father except the Son. Nobody knows the Son except the Father. And then he says, and the one to whom the Father wills to reveal him. Now, that last, that last pronoun, Jesus could be saying, wills to reveal the Son, and that's acceptable, or he could be saying, wills to reveal him, the Father and the Son, together with the Spirit, the one God. You see, Jesus is teaching us Trinitarian theology in this prayer. He is saying that he and his Father are one in divine power and being and glory, and that the Father must reveal that to his people through the Son, but that the Son is revealing God. John can say at the beginning of John's Gospel that the Son came from God in order to make him known to us according to his gracious will. Now notice, uh, Jesus is going to bring this short section here in this prayer to a close. And then he's going to turn to those that he calls babes. Now, there are, there are numerous ways that God wants us to think about ourselves. And, and it's very, right now, it's very trendy. Uh, you'll read memes and other social media um, I don't know what to call it, artwork, that'll say things like, you are so beautiful and love yourself and you're, you're wonderful and don't let anybody tell you otherwise and, you know, <laughs> all these little maxims that don't actually come from Scripture. And, um, and we know what the Bible says about our depravity and we know what it says about what we are by nature and, and we, we've owned that as Christians. Christians own that. Um, but then... God tells us that we are to think of ourselves as his sons and his daughters and as priests and kings to God. And he tells us to think about ourselves properly, that we have been redeemed by Christ, that we've been adopted into the Father's family, that we have been justified, that we, that we are made heirs of eternal life. And there are 50 other ways that we're to think about ourselves. But I love that when Jesus turns to the Father and he is full of joy and thanksgiving to the Father for what he's done, the way he teaches us to think about ourselves is as babes and little infants. Remember in the last chapter, he set a child in front of him and said, whoever receives this little child receives me. He's saying, the way I should think about myself all the time is that I am as but a, an infant um, in understanding. John Owen, I was reminding some guys this week, the great Puritan theologian who, who had one of the greatest intellects in all of church history wrote prolifically, uh, said toward the end of his life that, uh, and someone was saying, you've learned so much. You know so much about the scriptures. And he did know so much. And he made a statement to the, to the intent that when we have learned everything we can learn about God from scripture, we know nothing. We know nothing. He's the infinite God. And you say, no, you know something. No, you know nothing. Uh, John Calvin used to say, all that we can learn in the Bible is just baby talk. 
the depths, the most rich theological depths about Jesus is just baby talk because he's, he's infinite. He's the infinite God. He fills the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. He's contained only by himself. And Jesus praises his father for revealing these things to those who are babes in understanding. Um, I want to say one thing, and then I want us to look just briefly at these two concluding verses. The way to have our perspective centered on what really makes us joyful, and that is having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, comes about when we first come to acknowledge that we don't know anything like we should, we're not trusting in our knowledge of science or literature or art or philosophy or anything else that we think we know, not trusting in any of it, we acknowledge that we are, apart from the Holy Spirit, in darkness, and that everything God does by shining the light of the gospel into our hearts is to illuminate those who are babes in understanding, and then we see who Christ is, and we, we believe in him, and we trust him, and we follow him, and we worship him, and we tell others about him, and we want our children to know him, and our whole life, the goal is to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain, and to say with Paul, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, and, th and that's always driving as we start to meditate more and more in his word and grow more and more in joy and be more and more assured that our names are written in the book of life because we're desirous to walk in a way pleasing to him and to know him and to know the Father. And we rejoice in Christ, and then we rejoice that we've been redeemed by Christ because God the Father has given us to Christ. Now, notice the final two verses briefly. Um, Jesus also reminds us of the great privileges we have um, living on this side of the cross. He says to the disciples, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear things that many righteous men and kings desired to see and hear but could not. So Jesus is saying, blessed are your eyes for you see and your ears for you hear things that people long, godly people, kings, King David, they longed to see this. King Solomon, the wisest man in the world, didn't see everything you can see by opening your Bible and having the Holy Spirit illuminate your mind and heart. Now, I think Jesus is, at the end of this, teaching his disciples what he's teaching us. He wants us to have true joy. He wants us to understand that that joy comes by having a right perspective on what is most important, meditating on what is most valuable, being moved forward by what is the greatest thing that can produce true joy in our souls. And then he is teaching us where that joy comes from, how it comes to be ours, what's the foundation of that joy, how it centers on him. And here's what he wants, and here's what I'm going to pray for at the end of this sermon. He wants us to experience that in our souls. Now, if you told me after the sermon, sermon, if I said to you after the sermon, tell me about some things that really make you joyful, and you start telling me about your children and your grandchildren and this and that, you have missed the point. 
if someone met you four hours from now and said, Why, how are you so joyful? Oh, you know, just got to see the family and just got to do this and do that. We, we've missed the point. Jesus says, do not rejoice in your gifts or experiences. Rejoice in the fact that God has been gracious to you, has written your name in the book of life, has raised you from death to life, has united him to his son, has enabled you to see and hear things that no one else could and no one else who hasn't experienced this can. Only those to whom the Father graciously wills to reveal. I'm going to leave you with that this morning. And I hope, as, as we close this morning, that I hope that we will together collectively cry out to the Lord from the heart that he will make us to be a people who know true, real, and lasting joy in our souls. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we turn to you this morning, even as your son turned to you and rejoiced and thanked you, and we are grateful that in your good pleasure you have chosen a people in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you have set apart your son to be the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world to redeem us as you redeemed the thief on the cross. Our God, we acknowledge this morning how so often our lives are being carried around in the quest for passing joys or counterfeit joys or experiences or feelings that are not real and true joy. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that unless you cause us to experience true joy, we will not. Would you please cause your spirit to produce that in us? Would you please assure each of your people who are present here this morning whose names have been written in the book of life that they belong to you? And would you please give us an over, overwhelming sense of joy in being able to see and hear all those things about your son? Lord Jesus, would you draw near to us? Would you be formed in us? And would you impart your joy to us? We pray these things in your name. Amen.